0: Well, how many of you uh, need lots of reminders for things? A few of you are raising your hands. I'm not the only one. Uh, if you talk to me and, and try to set a schedule or, or an appointment or anything like that, you probably know uh, I will grab my phone and refer to it as my brain because if something doesn't go in there, it doesn't exist because I will forget. It's so bad. I have an app on my phone. SantaPack pa- Santa actually has an app now that reminds me on Tuesday nights to put my trash out. And it tells me whether it's yard debris or recycling that week because I never get it right. Am I the only one? Anyone else with me in this? And you know, I have to remember every Friday, oh yeah, it's early release for the kids, it's Friday. I forget that even though it happens every Friday. I have to remember to take my medication, which is a bit of an irony. I have to remember what groceries to get when I get to the store. I have to remember meetings, my to-do list, birthdays, anniversaries, change the oil in the car, pay the bills. It goes on and on and on. I have to remember, be reminded a lot. Uh, in fact, does anyone still, anyone here, do you still use sticky notes, anyone? I had to ban myself from these because that's what my, my office would actually look like that. They used to be all over my computer and everywhere. And as you may know, if you are a Sticky Note user, once you get beyond two or three of them, they're useless because there's just a whole lot of information, right? And in fact, when I switch to a laptop, you know, they just don't work the same. Uh, so I've had to sort of ban myself from these. And yet I need reminders all the time. In fact, the truth is, whether you recognize it or not, We all do. Maybe for different things, maybe in a different cadence, but all of us have a tendency to forget. And what's interesting is oftentimes we forget really important things. Sometimes it's reminders for little tasks, such as what I need. And sometimes we need reminders like the one we just had of what's truly important. So this morning, as we continue in 1 Corinthians 15, we come to a reminder. We come to a reminder of the gospel, realizing, again, that it's the important things, sometimes that we think we have down pat, that we need to be reminded of. Now, if you haven't been with us in this study, in First in and 2 Corinthians, but we've been studying 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to a divided church. And some of you know, there's a background here. Paul has written an early letter. Uh, the Corinthians, some of them have written a letter in response, most likely challenging some of the things that he's written them. And so there is this sense as we go through this letter that we're sort of getting one side of a conversation. But throughout this letter, Paul has called uh, this group of people who's divided to unity, uh, and in doing so, he's he's addressed a number of issues, many of them uh, they have written to him about. And now we come towards the end of the letter, and Paul pauses, if you will, to remind the Corinthians of what is central to their faith. It seems that they have forgotten something of serious consequence. If you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we look at this together this morning. But I want to begin with just the first two verses. Paul opens this way. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you take your stand. If I can just pause there. Can we recognize we too need to be reminded of this sometimes? They weren't the only ones. Uh, He goes on. He says, By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise... You have believed in vain. What is going on here? By the way, if if, if that word gospel is not familiar to you, it means good news. It's the really, really, really good news that we've already been celebrating some this morning. This good news that in Christ, God has demonstrated his full love for us. And in Christ, God has extended forgiveness and new life. It's good news. So we use the word gospel, which means good news. It's the good news of what Jesus has done on our behalf in this new life that's been made possible. Now, there's another word here that we probably don't recognize unless you speak Greek uh, that's worth noting because although it doesn't seem like much, it alludes to the misunderstanding that at least some of these Corinthians are caught in. Uh, When Paul says what's translated, I want to remind you, uh, he's actually using a phrase that, if we're taking it most word for word, means, I make known to you. And and the reason that's important is it's a play on a a phrase that the Corinthians really like to use because knowledge is a very big deal to them, and they think they possess uh, a whole lot of it. Now, throughout this letter, Paul has pushed back on their high view of their own knowledge. It seems that this is a central problem. In fact, this idea, this word knowing, uh, to know, its in Greek it's genosis, it shows up I think 25 times in the New Testament. Two-thirds of those are in the letters to Corinth. Paul uses this term far more than he does anywhere else because it's an issue for them. He's had to push back on their high view of what they think they know. In fact, if you flip to chapter 8 real quick, I'll, I'll put up the first two verses of that chapter. Uh, if you'll remember, there's a number of things Paul's had to correct here Uh, And in the midst of of chapter 8, he's correcting this practice that they've decided it's okay. Many of them coming from pagan backgrounds. uh, They've decided it's okay to take part in these meals that happen at pagan temples, which is not okay. And so this is how Paul responds to this. He says, now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that, and we see the quotes there, right? If you've been with us, this is where Paul is quoting most likely what they've written to him. Uh, we know that we all possess knowledge, although the, so this is this, you know, we're really smart. We know better. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. By the way, this is one of the central ideas that weaves through this whole letter, because part of what the problem is, is there's some in Corinth that think they know better than everybody else, apparently including Paul. I put verse 3 up here? I didn't. It continues uh, saying, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. He's contrasting love and knowledge as these two value sets. But this knowledge, or, or in Greek, gnosis, points to this deeper problem. And we'll get back to the idea of gnosis in a minute, but let's first understand this overall reminder that Paul is making in chapter 15. And the subject of the reminder is resurrection from the dead. Paul's going to lay this argument out in three parts. Uh, The first two we'll look at this morning. Next week, Reed's going to walk us through the the latter part of this chapter. Uh, But he begins by reestablishing this commonly held uh, view of Christ's resurrection, emphasizing, by the way, his bodily death. That's going to be important. And in the verse 12 down through 34, uh, Paul's going to focus on this contradiction between believing in Christ's resurrection, but not believing that they will be bodily resurrected. And then at the end of the chapter, which Reed will lead us through next week, uh, Paul explains sort of how that happens, how the dead are raised. But if we look at verse 12, we we see sort of why that Paul is giving uh, emphasis on this issue. He says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? Here is the problem he's addressing. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So what's going on here is there's those in the Corinthian church that believe there's no physical resurrection from the dead. Now, almost certainly... It's a universal held belief that there is life after this one. That was true of pretty much everyone uh, in the ancient world. They believed in some form of afterlife. But they're denying this Christian belief of bodily resurrection, this physical reality, uh, likely holding on to this Greek view of the world uh, informed by philosophers such as Plato, who came much earlier now, this view that Paul is refuting is often referred to as Gnosticism. If you're a history buff on the church, this is probably an early form of it. It isn't fully uh, formed yet. But it, it comes from that word gnosis that I just mentioned, that word for knowledge. Uh, and Gnosticism is this w- view of the world that's based, if you will, on two false premises. The first one is this, that there's a complete separation between the spirit and the body or the physical. And by nature, anything physical is bad but anything that's spirit is good. And and somehow there's this throwing off of the physical, if you will. Uh, And and because the physical is worthless, uh, some of these Christians seem to come to an understanding that, well, that doesn't matter, so whatever happens in my physical body doesn't matter, no no matter how bad it is. By the way, they seem to be doing a number of things that fit that bill if you've been paying attention through this letter. Uh, But secondly, Gnostics claim to possess this secret or elevated knowledge, which is only known to a certain few. They, they know better. You know, they're, they're above all those simpletons. By the way, this again very much fits what we see in this letter and this uh, reality that Paul has been pushing back on this idea throughout 1st Corinthians. Now we can understand perhaps more than we realize or want to admit how thinking you know better as a worldview can lead to division, right? That same root of pride is what leads us to the polarization that we are experiencing right now. Believing even if it means adjusting the facts or nuancing things to support our knowledge, we know better than the people who disagree with us. Maybe you've seen that in a place or two recently. Because it's part of our culture. So what does Paul make known to them? What does he remind them of? What is it that they think they know better, but they don't actually. Now, there are some facts we do well to remember that come in the next few verses. If you uh, look at verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says this. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. In other words, this really matters. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Verse 4, That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, According to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, by the way, Cephas is another term for Peter, uh, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That's a nice way of saying they've died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, uh, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. He's speaking of the way he came to faith a little differently than the rest of the people he's mentioned. But Paul says, what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. And so what we see is there's something crucial and central that Paul's already taught them that he's bringing them back to. What is that? It's that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, now, if you believe that matter is inherently evil or the body is inherently evil, one of the things that led to was this idea that Jesus Christ was, was only spirit, that there wasn't a physical reality or physical death. Now, when Paul says, according to the scriptures, it seems that there's a creedal statement here, something they were already aware of, but he's probably thinking of places like Isaiah fifty-two, fifty-three, or these pictures of what's to come in Jesus. But this is central. I think. Hopefully we agree to this, to the Christian faith this morning. Jesus died for our sins, a physical death on a cross for the penalty of sin. He continues, he says that Christ was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is important because Jesus wasn't sort of dead or mostly dead or non-physical being. Jesus physically died all the way dead, was buried, and was raised back to life. Now I want to pause here because if you're like me, you've probably heard an argument somewhere along the way that this idea of Jesus dying and being resurrected uh, was this later created myth. You know, under Constantine or some group of bishops somewhere, hundreds of years later, uh, you know, kind of came up with this, and this wasn't really what the early followers of Jesus thought. Understand the vast majority of historians. Uh, Christian and non-Christian alike, believe that the letter we've been going through was written somewhere around A.D. 35, very, very soon after the death of Christ. A few argue later, but even they say A.D. 40, 41. This is roughly 250 years be- before Constantine would become emperor, and, and 313 was when he gave his edict accepting Christianity. So that idea that this came later, uh, history doesn't really support that, <laughs> We have, in fact, a whole long historical record, both inside the church and outside, referring to Jesus not only as a historical figure, but someone who was believed uh, to have died an atoning death and to be resurrected. I'll just put a few of those examples up on the screen. Uh, I'm not going to go through all these because we're not doing a history lesson this morning. But Thallus, for example, speaks very clearly of Jesus' death Josephus speaks very clearly of this belief of Jesus' death and resurrection among these Christians. Uh, Clement speaks of Jesus' death. The Didache is this very early Christian document. This is just some of the evidence far be- you know long before Constantine that speaks of this belief being uh, very present and central to the Christian faith. I bring that up because often we hear otherwise uh, that somehow this was this legend that was later cre- created, uh, maybe decades or centuries later, The historical data just doesn't support that idea. So what Paul says of first importance, let's just start with, is historical. Okay, As we're gathered this morning to celebrate Jesus, I think it's really helpful to understand we're not just gathering because somebody told us this is true. This was a historical event. It's very easily supported that Jesus historically existed. It's very easily supported that very quickly after Jesus' death, A large group of people believed Jesus died and was rose from the dead, as Paul writes about. Just helpful, I think, to know that. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ was buried, raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And the evidence supports we can have faith in this. Uh, But notice this is interesting because this is, again, something written about 35 A.D. This is very shortly after the death of Jesus. If we continue, um, Paul goes on to say, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, some who have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and then, of course, he refers to himself. So we have Peter, who's someone they knew, We have the 12 uh, apostles or disciples mentioned. We have James. We have this list, interestingly, of 500 people. Uh, Many of these, he says, are still alive. So likely, Paul's writing to an audience who either knew some of these people or or certainly knew of them, corroborating uh, this, this belief that Jesus physically died a real death for our sins and that his physical body was raised back to life. Now, beginning in verse 12, Paul emphasizes the contradiction of believing in Christ, believing that happened, and yet not believing in this bodily resurrection for those who believe in Christ. Notice the impact of this thinking. If we go back and, and pick back up in verse 12, he says, But if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? No physical afterlife. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. By the way, this is just as true today as it was then. Either we have every reason in the world to celebrate this morning, or it's all in vain. There's no in between. Verse 15, more than that, We are then found to be false witnesses about God for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised again strong words your faith is futile you are still in your sins. Pretty strong argument here. Pretty black and white. Verse 18 Then those who also, have fallen asleep in Christ or lost, if this is true. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Again, this is very all or nothing in Paul's mind. If we forget that we're looking forward to a bodily resurrection in Christ, we're to be pitied. If that's not true, We're to be pitied. Our faith is futile. Because this is central to our hope. And we can all agree about that. Maybe you don't agree. That's okay. Glad you're here. But I want to think about what it looks like to forget that we have that to look forward to. Because although we may not be in the same argument as some of the people that Paul's uh, pushing back on, isn't it true that we can forget on a daily basis what we have to look forward to? You know, that idea of fear of missing out. If if this is all there is, that idea makes a lot of sense. But if we're living with that fear of missing out, then it kind of suggests we're forgetting this isn't all that there is. And if we're caught in this race to accumulate as much stuff as I can in this life, we're probably operating out of a view that forgets there's more than this life. When we understand that, that opens the door to being generous. It allows us to to let go of many of the things that we're anxious about, that we worry about. And I would say this as well, that, that when we forget what we have to look forward to, when we forget the central tenet of the Christian faith and what
1: a big deal this truth is, it leads us to minimize the importance of sharing our faith. I think it's frighteningly easy to forget this isn't all there is.
0: I think we too, I know I do, at least from time to time, need reminding that we have a future that we are living towards because of Christ. Our faith informs us that there is a physical life after this one. This isn't it. And we might not consider ourselves Gnostics. You might even not be familiar with that idea, but it doesn't mean that we're immune to forgetting. Now Paul's going to sort of do a pivot in verse 20 and go back to reminding them of the truth. Verse 20, he writes this, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And notice this, the last enemy to be destroyed is death.
1: It isn't the end. It isn't the end. Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has been raised from the
0: dead. That is a pretty exceptional statement, isn't
1: it? And if that's true, man, I worry about some silly stuff. You laugh because that's probably true of you
0: too, right? Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul writes that death came through Adam and in a similar way, life came through Jesus Christ. Like the all caps life, the life we were created for. He says Jesus has authority over all enemies even death itself. This is our hope. This is a reality that needs to be in front of us every single day. Why? Because we forget. We get sidetracked. It's like we need one giant sticky note, right? It covers our steering wheel, maybe our whole computer. That reminds us Jesus died for our sins and was raised to life, and therefore we
1: have hope beyond whatever is in front of us right now. No matter how bad it looks. We
0: can live with this eternal perspective and I would argue it makes all the difference in how we
1: live. Whether we have that perspective in front of us or not. Paul's pretty emphatic on this. Now before we close... Rather
0: than read around it, I want to deal with something rather peculiar that follows in verse 29. If you have your Bible, you might look down at that and recognize that that's read by itself in a vacuum. It could lead to some interesting things. Now, the issue that Paul is confronting is a belief that we don't physically come back to life. I would argue it's based on this sort of Gnostic view of the world that that the physical is bad, the spirit is good. And Paul has reminded them of the central belief in Christ. He's pointed out the contradiction to what they say they believe. And he's reminded them again that Christ was, in fact, raised from the dead, and therefore we will be too. Now, in verse 29, Paul says something that on its face just, it's weird. This isn't something Paul is suggesting or condoning. It's not something you find anywhere else in Scripture. It's not the basis of a theological practice we should take on. In fact, I would remind us, if you've been through this study, maybe you remember the idea that most of 1 Corinthians is far more corrective than it is instructive. What I mean by that is he's not always teaching new information, but like here, he's reminding them, he's bringing them back to the truth, he's correcting a place that they're off, he's dealing with specific problems. And so we come to verse 29, and it says, now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all why are people baptized for them huh baptized for the dead can we agree that's kind of a strange idea now there's some argument over what paul's saying here but let's think about the context paul is referencing something the corinthians know and he's using it as a contradiction in fact I would argue the next few verses are part of this sort of ad hominem argument. He's essentially saying, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then, then why would you do this? If we go back to the early church fathers, uh, people with names like Tertullian and Chrysostom and Epiphanius. Not easy words to say. Please don't name your kids Epiphanius. They allude to this practice uh, very early on that there were these Gnostic groups... And they remember, they they see the body is bad and the spirit is good. And in some of these groups, these, these Gnostics were having living believers baptized on behalf of those in their sect who died without being baptized. By the way, everywhere you find writing about this, it's strongly condemned. I think what Paul is doing here is he's speaking to the Gnostics in this audience within the Corinthian church who think they know better and he's pointing out that even their own practices, as strange as they might be, contradict what they believe. In other words, You're doing this because you say you don't believe that there's a physical resurrection, but even what you're doing contradicts that. Your way of thinking and your practice make no sense. In other words, why do you deny the truth and yet at the same time carry out this strange practice that contradicts your supposed belief? Again, remember, this is a church that has a lot of baggage from their past pagan cultures. And their knowledge, they're condoning things like really strange sexual practices, like suing other believers, eating in pagan temples, all of these various things. And this knowledge was leading to significant problems. And again, as he's done earlier, Paul seems to be pointing out contradictions between their behavior what they say they believe, in the Christian faith. In fact, he continues his argument saying, why would he and they endanger themselves for the gospel if this isn't true? And then he finishes with these words, which really, I think, speak back to verse 29 and, and really the whole situation. He says, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. By the way, that's a statement that when I was a teenager, I really needed to know, right? Still need to know it. He says, come back to your senses as you ought. But clearly they're not in their senses. He says, stop sinning. For there's some who are ignorant of God. And I say this to your shame. These are really strong words. This failure to believe in the central hope that we have in Jesus. In their case, rooted in this belief that the spirit is good, the physical is bad, doesn't matter, and so...
1: The body isn't a big deal. Paul says, Come back to your senses.
0: And as I consider all of this this morning and just this prime example of how easily it is to wander, to forget what really is important,
1: I suppose that's the question for us. How do we need to come back to our senses? This isn't in my notes, and maybe I'm going to get in trouble. But I will say one clear way, way we
0: need to come back to our senses is we argue over really stupid stuff. A lot of it's political. If that divides us, I think Paul would say come back to your senses. Because if that's that important, we've lost focus. This life is not all there is. This country is not all there is. This city is not all there is. Our little worlds that we think revolve around us sometimes. It's not all there is. I think Paul would look perhaps at the way we've enshrined this idea of accumulating. And he might say, come back to your senses.
1: I think Paul would look at our deep value to to numb ourselves with entertainment. He'd say, come back to your senses. I wonder what this morning you need to remember. I wonder if there's a place where if you're
0: honest, you would see that your behavior is contradicting what you say you believe. By the way, I think we all have those places. It's just we don't
1: always recognize them. How do we need to be reminded of what is central and what is true? How would Jesus invite us to be recentered this
0: morning and to recognize we have every reason to
1: celebrate so we can stop being mad at everything? I'm sorry. we have a lot more to celebrate than any reason
0: to be upset, and we get so consumed in stuff that we disagree on or we're angry about. I do it too. It was really cool that both the ducks and beavers won yesterday. But it isn't important. But I make it important sometimes. Right? Especially on days when they don't win. I think Paul would say come back to your senses. Focus on what matters. Remember who you are because of who Christ is.
1: This isn't a myth. This is the center of our hope. So I wonder this morning, where would Jesus invite you to be
0: reminded of the truth, maybe to let go of something that's a distraction?
1: Let's trust God to speak to us as we pray. Father, thank You for Your love for us. We recognize this morning that we don't always give it the weight that it deserves.
0: We recognize this morning that we have an incredible ability to forget, to be distracted, to make the wrong things important. Would you remind us this morning of the incredible hope that we have in Christ Jesus? Would you remind us of the magnitude of your love for us? Would you free us from the things that we make important that aren't?
1: Would you give us a more eternal perspective and how we're living our days. Would You fill us with joy? Because we have every reason for it. And would You help us to resemble Christ more and more in the way we live? Amen.